That's Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 52. In this passage, we're introduced to two of God's servants, uh, Simeon and Anna. We also see that Luke's gospel records Jesus at 12 years old and what he, what he does at 12 years old, which is unique to the other gospels. So we're going to jump in with verses 25 through 27. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. The consolation of Israel, that was always understood as the messianic hope because God used the Messiah to console Israel. What does that word console mean? It means to soothe the grief of. The obvious thing you would say, well, they were oppressed by the Romans, but they were also oppressed by the religious system. It had grown corrupt, and people were, were yearning for us, for true spirituality. That's the way God has made us, to yearn for him in truth. The Holy Spirit does a few things for Simeon. Number one, he reveals. He reveals to Simeon that he had an appointment with the Messiah prior to his death. And he also leads Simeon to that appointment. The Holy Spirit led him exactly to where the Messiah was going to be. When I was going through this, I thought of that expression that you've probably heard a lot, where God guides, God provides. If God has a vision for your life, he will be sure to provide that for you. He will be sure to provide the means for you. If you, if you notice that you know, you're praying about something and the Lord has laid it on your heart and all these doors start opening up, there's a good indication that the Lord is wanting you to walk through those doors. And by the same token, sometimes we fight to, to get the things that we want. Maybe we think God is leading us in the direction, and we, we fight and fight and fight to get into that direction. And God closes the doors on us. And when he closes those doors, we can't open them. So it works both ways. Verse 28, we're going to read about what he says. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. From my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Departure. This was a figure of speech for him saying, basically, now I can die. I've seen the consolation of Israel. Now I can go in peace. I can depart. We heard two weeks ago when Pastor Luis was up here, aside from roasting me up here, he also taught a pretty good message. And he talked about what it means to die as a Christian. And it's not that we seek death, but it is not a terrible thing to die as a Christian. I want to read something. Wearsby's book, Comforting the Bereaved, a very interesting passage. He says this. Death is a divine judgment executed upon our first parents because of their willful disobedience. But it is also a divine provision of grace. If there were no death, corrupt sinners would live forever in a decaying environment without hope. If there were no death, the Redeemer could not have come as the last Adam to die for the sins of the world and open the doors to everlasting life. Very interesting passage, dear, because what really struck me was if we lived forever on this earth, that would really be like a sentence. You know, our bodies are decaying. The environment is decaying. We're constantly warring with our flesh. We deal with a world that mostly is controlled by evil people. You know, it's just the way the world system is. So... 
it actually, in some points, it's a way to move on to better things. It reminds me of if you live in a shack and you move to a beautiful mansion. Jesus talks about the Father's house. There's many mansions in it. So you're going from one place to another to a better place. And the question is, to everybody here, are you sure you know where you're going when you die? Some people think, well, that's presumptuous. We can't know that. Well, that's not true. In 1 John, one of the reasons John says that he writes to the Christians is to tell them, I write to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may be assured of that salvation. And we give those opportunities at the end of the service to, to, have, you, to have that assurance of salvation, that you know where you're going to go when you die. The Jehovah Witnesses and the atheists don't believe in the literal hell. They believe that you kind of your mind ceases to exist when you die. You just you're thinking now. You're conscious when you sleep. You're dreaming. Your mind is always running in a sense. But then when you die, you know, the TV shuts off and that's it forever. Well, I guess that's not a bad thought if you're in rebellion. But unfortunately, that's not the truth. Um, you know, I could say I don't believe in gravity. I don't believe in gravity, and I could convince myself that I don't believe in gravity. But 10 times out of 10, that's going to happen. <laughs> so the question is, what is your belief based on? There's a lot of falsehoods that, you know, pe- people have. A, this, this country is filled with a spirituality. Everybody's got some type of spirituality. But it's useless if it's not based on the truth. There is people in certain cultures that believe that uh, the earth was supported by an elephant somehow. That on the back of, no, seriously, I'm not trying to make, make light of it. But that the and it, it was a tie to to a religion, to a, a belief, and that the Earth actually sat on the back of an elephant. Well, when we got into our space shuttles and spacecraft and went out and took a picture of the Earth, there's no elephant there. So you know you have to abandon that belief system. Or even even the church at the time in the Middle Ages believed that the Earth was flat. You know they they didn't believe that the uh, the Earth revolved around the sun, the heliocentric view. So, you know, that was based on fallacy, too, because the scriptures are clear that the earth is a sphere, right? So, verse 31, it says this. He says, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, this salvation. Salvation to who? All peoples. Starting in Genesis 9, Genesis 12, God said to Abraham that your descendants, you know, through, through them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just some, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. Gentile inclusion is all over the Old Testament. But why, why did it have to come through the Jewish people? Well, God revealed himself to those people, and the true God revealed himself to them. So it had to be through them because people were, were worshipping all kinds of pagan deities, you know, the deities of the sea, deities of, of fertility. And to really know who God was, they would, they would have to understand, they would have to ask a Jewish person what they believed. And they were supposed to be that vehicle. In verse 32, he speaks about a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. A light. John 8.12 says this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So you saw some things being said about Jesus, and then him making them more clear as time went on, and he, he brought forth his teachings. But what was Israel's glory? You know, could Israel have any glory? The only glory that Israel could have had was that they were the vehicle to salvation. They, should, they would rejoice that through them the Messiah would come and through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And it's, it's like you would think about if the, the Israelites would have their neighbors, the different Canaanites and all the different people groups around them. And, the, and many of the times these people would come to their Jewish neighbors and say, tell me about your God. I see that he's done great miracles. And, you know, the Philistines would be worshiping the fish god. So they'd be like, this fish god's not doing much for me. Tell me about your God. So the glory of Israel was that they were the vehicle to salvation, to, to a lost and dying world. And in verse 33, it says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They honored God and not go, knowing his full plan. They were going with the flow, so to speak. Not the, the flow of the world, but with the flow of God. Uh, so you can think about riding the wave. You know, you get yourself, you're out on the ocean, and the ocean's big. Well, what are you going to do? A wave comes, you just try to stay afloat and see where that wave takes you. You know, you've got to trust God. We have to trust him. And we have to go where he has us go. And that's what Joseph and Mary had to do. With the birth, with the miraculous conception, with all those things, they had to trust God and start on a journey with God. Knowing God is big, but not really realizing how big God is. I think about my wife and I when we started our family in the beginning. And, uh, you know, it was a humble beginning. It was uh, three of us, and, you know, I was a police officer, and we try to do things the traditional way and have Heather stay home. And she did a great job with our son. He knows all nine fruits of the Spirit. You just ask him. He's pretty good. But, he, you know, she, my wife has done a fantastic job of raising my son. He's a really good kid. But I remember our beginnings, even our wedding. Um, I know she doesn't like when I say this, but we had a real, real uh, humble, meager wedding. I call it the Walmart wedding. She doesn't like that. But it was, it was very humble. But you know what? We've been together for 14 years, and we have a great marriage. So it really doesn't matter at this point. I remember sometimes I would write out the checks, you know, the, you know, the heating bill and the electric bill and the phone bill, and I would put them on a stack on the table, and I'd say, now, Heather, you can't mail these out, because if you do, it's going to be negative $600 in the bank account. So I would have to wait until my check cleared from work before mailing those bills out. But, you know, I don't regret any of those times. The Lord has, has carried us through, and he's blessed us abundantly as a result of honoring him and trusting him, and he'd do the same thing for you. 34 through 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So the rising and falling. Again, a lot of these things didn't come full term until Jesus grew up, started his ministry and started teaching. Remember the constant theme of exalting and abasing, Jesus said. The proud will be abased. The humble will be exalted. The rising and the falling. That's a hallmark of Jesus' teachings. Now, Jesus was a conduit. Through Jesus, the proud and the rebellious would be punished for eternity. And through Jesus, the humble and the repentant would be taken care of and exalted for eternity. People would think that, well, you know, Jesus wouldn't do this and Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus said himself, he wasn't the great uniter of men. He was the great divider of men. He said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Not a literal sword, but when you make a stand for God through Jesus Christ, you make a stand. And you'll find that people in your own family will not talk to you anymore. They'll think you're in the cult. we got the cult here going on in the school. Uh, they'll think that, you know, your friends will think that you're weird, that you don't do things with them anymore. A lot of people will, will treat you differently, and there'll be divisions. Don't expect to follow God and not to have division in your life. Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. 
Jesus says this about himself. It's Matthew 21, 42 through 44. He said, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whomever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's an awesome scripture right there because you, he, you know, this comes from Psalm 118. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And in those days, you heard all the illustrations of, you know, they didn't have excavating companies. People would they'd dig a hole to, to build a, uh, an edifice, and they would basically uh, go to the quarry and, and, you know, chip out this huge sto- stone. It would be like a cornerstone. It would be the foundational stone. And all the stones, it would be like the, the cornerstone, the foundational stone, and all the stones would be built upon that foundational stone. And the building couldn't stand without that stone. That was the chief stone. The building couldn't stand without that at all. So Jesus likens himself to that. And he also says that whomever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever the stone falls on will be ground to powder. There's two pictures there. If we come to the end of ourselves and we just, you know what, Lord, I, I'm just tired of living my life the way, the way it's going, the trials, you know what, and you try to follow the Lord, you fall on that stone. You come to the end of yourself. You fall on the stone of Jesus Christ and you're broken. But broken bones repair. I think of, um, I was, remember watching uh, a, a study or a documentary on the martial artists. And these guys would break boards and they would break bricks and they would break, and I'm like, man, I don't know how they do that stuff, right? Uh, Josiah and I were fooling around in the garage once and I had a board and I was hitting it. I broke one of them, but the other one it hurt me for a few days. But anyway, these martial artists, they, they do this constantly. And they actually took a bone scan of a normal person's bone in their arms and their hands and a martial artist's bones in their arms and their hands. And most of our bones are porous. There's little tiny little pores in there. It's like a sponge. But what the martial artist does is every time he hits those bricks, he makes little hairline fractures in his bones and the body repairs it stronger than it was. So their hands actually become more dense and they actually do become lethal weapons. Their, their hands are like, like, like a, a very hard substance after a while because of all the mineral deposits in it. So going back to the scripture, if you fall on Jesus, if you, if you come to the end of your rope and give your life to him and you, you break your bones, he will repair you stronger than you were before. But if you rebel against him, if you reject the way of salvation through Jesus Christ and the stone falls on you, it will grind you to powder and there's no hope for you. That's a picture of, of, of eternal uh, destruction. And even in Daniel uh, chapter 12, he says two things, Daniel. He says people will die and they will, they will rise, some to everlasting shame and contempt and some to everlasting righteousness. So there's, only, there's, there's two choices that you have in life. You can follow one way or the other. There's no in between. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. There's no do-overs in this life. What you, what you, the decision you make here has eternal consequences. And spoken against. It says that Jesus will be a sign that is spoken against. The word in the Greek is anti-legomenon. I had to practice that. Anti-legomenon. Say that three times fast. But the form is, Greek has different forms than the English. Actually, there's more you know, grammatical tenses. And this is the present passive participle. It's another one. Uh, it's a continuous action. It's been happening since the time Simeon spoke, and it still happens today. This is an ongoing, the tense is an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing 
you know, for all of mankind. You've got to think about even what's happened in the last maybe 100 years or more. Look at the philosopher Nietzsche. He said this about Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus Christ is the curse of the human race because he spared the weak. Hitler liked that. He grabbed that philosophy and he started killing the weak. That was part of his final solution. There's actually a report I saw on the, the History Channel that he wiped out a complete, uh, it was a home for disabled children. He just wiped it out. He felt that he agreed with Nietzsche that the weak had to get, get rid of so that our society could become stronger. But that's not what Jesus believed, obviously. You see, um, Jesus is still a sign spoken against. You see what's happening if you follow uh, the media, what's happening uh, about Christmas. You know, in our country, we're not talking about a communist country. In some school districts, your kids can't wear red and green because it's an obvious display of, of Christmas. And it's a dress coat. They can't wear the color. It's, this is the weirdest thing. Uh, in some districts, you can't say the name of Jesus Christ, you know. The free speech is for the pornographers and the flag burners, but God forbid you talk about God. That's a bad thing. Um, even some townships have tried to outlaw Christmas displays. They felt they try to put it under the eyesore statute. We can't have all these Christmas lights. It's offensive to some people. Again, this is going on here today. Uh, some stores have barred the Salvation Army and have not allowed the word Christmas to be used. It's the holiday season. Well, the holiday season about what? Right? A few nights ago, I was at work, and we had some downtime, so I was work, watching uh, Hannity and Combs' show, and Franklin Graham was on it. I, I love to listen to him because he's so powerful. He, he, he talked about Jesus so much. You know, He was like just out there, and, and God sent his only son to die for our sins, and he shed his blood on the cross so that we could have... I mean, he just was going on so much to the point that even Hannity was getting annoyed with him, I could see. But uh, he just, he's great because whatever, if you give him a minute to speak, you have to know he's going to talk about Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about salvation. But Franklin Graham said the assault's not on the Christmas holiday. He said the assault is on Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. The assault, it's a spiritual warfare. The assault is on Jesus Christ. That's why all these things are happening. So let me get this straight now. In the, in the schools, you can talk about sex. That's a good thing. You can pass out condoms. You could force kids to read Heather's Has Two Mommies. And you can teach that my great-great-great-great-grandfather was a baboon. But, you know, don't talk about the Savior of mankind or anything that has to do with God. Don't pray, because that's a bad thing. It may negatively influence the child and confuse them. <laughs> verse 35. He talks about two swords here in verse 35. There's a sword... That there's a parenthetical statement in verse 35. It says, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And then the parentheses ends, and it says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, which goes back to the initial statement that Simeon was making. Two swords here. The first sword went through Mary's own soul. She was, it must have been a little odd to her or confusing, uh, or maybe she just doesn't, didn't understand, but... Luke 147, before the child was even born, she said, I rejoice in God, my Savior. So she knew that this child that she was carrying would be the Savior of mankind and that he would also cleanse her sins, right? But at the same time, when she gave birth, she nurtured him, she fed him, she took care of him. And then he grew up and he taught and he went to the cross. And the Bible records that John, the disciple, was there and Mary was there too. And it must have been very hard for her to see, you know, him die on the cross. So a sword, in a sense, pierced through her own soul, her own heart. She would have a lot of sorrow uh, based on this child that she was carrying. There would be a lot of public opinion would turn against him. So that would be difficult for her. 
But at the same time, more importantly, Hebrews 4.12 says this. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We know that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is that two-edged sword. And we see back in Luke's uh, gospel in, in chapter 2 that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's what the, the word of God does. That would, that's what Jesus does as that two-edged sword. It, pierce, it pierces through the nonsense. It causes people who are sitting on the fence, straddling that fence to make a decision. Are you going to go with me or you're not going to go with me, right? So he, he made people make that choice as the word of God. And in verse 36 through 38, we see another person here. We see Anna comes into the picture and says this. Now, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So this a little bit about this woman. She's a prophetess. She's a female prophet. And it appears that she was married for seven years from her virginity to a man, her husband, and then he died. And then she was a, a widow for the rest of her life, and now she's 84 years old. And from that point on, as a widow, she devoted her life to God. She served God. If you do the calculations, she was around when Jerusalem fell to the Romans under Pompeii. She was around for that, historically. She also lost her husband at a young age when they were just starting their life together. So no doubt she witnessed some hard, hard times. But instead of becoming bitter, this drove her into the arms of God. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what trials do. They drive us into the arms of God. Because where else are we going to go? Jesus said, or Peter said to Jesus, where else are we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. No matter how bad things get, it would be foolish to say, well, that's it. Stomping my feet, I'm out of here, Lord. I can't do this anymore. The best place to be is in the arms of God when you're going through trials. That's where you need to be. That's where you, you should be driven towards. And that's, the, that's where Anna went. And Anna comes into the temple. She sees Jesus and thanks God for him. And she spends the rest of her elderly years spreading the good news of redemption to, to Israel. I just want to digress a little bit to talk about the importance of women in the Bible. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions and purposeful lies about women's roles in the Bible. Uh, I remember having a conversation with somebody on the phone, somebody I had to do business with, and it was a young, young lady, and she, of course, I always have to talk about the Lord. She, she actually said to me, it was something to do with the medical thing, and she said, you know, you're such a nice guy. I said, yeah, well, I'm a Christian, and that opened the door to, to share the gospel with her. But, you know, her... When I asked her about reading the Bible and, and God, and she said, well, I, the Bible to me is, is sexist. I said, really? Can you point out a specific portion of it that is sexist? She goes, well, no, I really haven't read it. I says, so basically, you're doing a book report on a book you haven't read. That's hard to do. But a quick glance in the concordance, you know, just going through this briefly, 160 references to specific women in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, that doesn't include general references. 160 specific references to women in the Bible, and 43 references alone to women in Luke's gospel. I just want to go through the list about, now I have to give props to my ladies here in the audience because you blew us away at the women's breakfast, so you can't say that I can't be influenced up here. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to talk about some, some quick, some notable women in, in the scriptures. 
Abigail, she was the wife of David, a woman of wisdom and integrity. Anna, we just spoke of her. Candace, the Ethiopian queen. Chloe, a wise woman at Corinth. Deborah, a wife, a prophetess, a judge, and a military leader. She's got more roles than me. Elizabeth, she was the blessed mother of John the Baptist. Esther, the wise and brave queen of Persia. Eunice, Timothy's mother and a godly woman. Euodius, uh, co-laborer to Paul. Eve, the first mommy. Probably famous quote was, how do I do this childbearing thing? <laughs> Hannah, Samuel's mom. Hulda, a prophetess. Isaiah's wife, a prophetess. Jedediah, Josiah's mother. Stop. Josiah's mother, great king, great man of God, uh, a man after God's own heart. You can't just say, oh, it's just, she's just the mother. Do you think that a, a godly man who's been raised by a woman and, and he learns to love God and to learns a thing about God, don't you think that mom should get a little bit of credit for that? Right? This should be a Mother's Day message, right? I guess I should save this for Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, Job's three daughters, known for their beauty, Joanna, aided Jesus, Jochebed, Moses' mom, Lois, Timothy's grandmother, and a godly woman, Leah, Jacob's wife, Lydia, the first Christian convert in all of Europe, Martha, and all the Marys. I lumped them together because all the Marys in the New Testament were good. Miriam, prophetess, Moses' sister. Naomi, Ruth's selfless mother-in-law. Phoebe was a deaconess. Priscilla, Aquila's wife, godly woman. Philip's four daughters were all prophetesses. That would have been great for, like, the weather forecast. So what do you think it's going to be tomorrow? You know, I don't need to know how to dress for that. Uh, Rachel, Jacob's wife. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Uh, and a lot of these women in, in the scripture, a lot of these wives, at times showed more courage than their husbands. Uh, Rahab aided Israel's military campaign against Jericho. Salome, the mother of James and John. Sarah, Abraham's wife. Susanna ministered to Jesus. And Syntyche, a convert to Philippi. There's a huge difference between saying that the Bible is sexist, which it's not, and the Bible records sexism in the Bible. That's more an accurate, accurate statement. You've got to make the distinction. Genesis was clear. God said one man and one woman equals one flesh. That's the way he set it up. And just in case they didn't get the picture, later on in the law, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he told the men, don't multiply your wives. You know, what God says, God doesn't change. And we actually see through the scripture that some of these men who multiplied their wives, who had more than one wife, had many problems later on. It caused a lot of friction. Uh, whole nations uh, rose up. Uh, and, and rebelled against God's people because of these men's foolish choices. Okay, 39 through 40, it says, When they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, between verses 38 and 39, there's a gap of time that Matthew records the visit of the wise men. You'll notice that as we go further, the wise men aren't in here. Herod isn't in here. So there's a gap between these two verses that Matthew focuses on something that Luke doesn't focus on. Now, why would that be? Well, it's important for the readers to understand that Matthew's focus was for people to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And he had a lot of Old Testament uh, prophecies that were fulfilled in, in the book of Matthew. Just a little thing about Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was a man who sold out his own people to work for the Romans and impressed his own people with the power and might of the Roman government. 
But the Bible records that when Jesus approached Matthew, he actually left his booth. <laughs> he left his job, he left his booth, and he came to follow Jesus and became one of the twelve. Now, it's just conjecture, but I'm just going to say that uh, Matthew probably returned back to his roots with a vengeance. You know, he realized what he had done. He came back and repented. And he, when he, when he wrote his biography of Jesus, it was, it was clear cut who the Messiah was. If you know somebody who's Jewish and they're open to reading the Bible, I would have them read Matthew because they can go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament and see that the scriptures are fulfilled there. But how does the story of the wise men help to prove that Jesus is the Messiah? And because, and I didn't plan this because it's getting close to Christmas time, you know. <laughs> but one, the first thing is we, we see that King Herod the Great was on the throne at the time. And he was a puppet king. He was an evil man. He was a cruel man. And he certainly wasn't God's choice for the chosen Messiah. He was chosen to rule over the Jewish people. But he had the, the children in Bethlehem. Remember the story about the children, the male children that were killed in Bethlehem because he wanted to snuff out the Messiah, you know, even as a baby. Now, what was the reason for that? Well, because he didn't want any competition. Herod knew that the birth of the Messiah would be competition for him. And it's kind of foolish anyway, because a few years later he died before the child could even grow up. But his insane rage and jealousy uh, caused him to do these crazy acts. And the second thing is the dignitaries bringing gifts to Jesus, the wise men. There was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Most of us know what gold is, but we have no idea what frankincense and myrrh is. But there's significance to these gifts. The gold represented Jesus as the king. These gifts represented Jesus as the king and the prophet and the priest that he was. He fulfilled all three roles. The gold was a a signal of authority and royalty. The frankincense showed Jesus' priestliness. Because if you look in the Old Testament, frankincense was a fragrant gum used in various ingredients in the temple service. And then myrrh. Myrrh was a dried gum from a balsam tree which was used in embalming, and that signified his death. And we know through scripture that most of the prophets died a martyr's death. So that's what the significance of that is. And in John 2, I'm sorry, John 21, 24 through 25, at the end of his, his biography of Jesus, John writes that, I, he says that basically they had to be selective in what they chose to speak about regarding Jesus. Because he said, I suppose that if everything was uh, written about what Jesus did, all the books in the world would be fulfilled. So each gospel writer had to be very selective because Jesus did so much in that, in that ministry that he had on this earth. It, honestly, it's, it wasn't important you know, how soon Jesus learned to walk, how soon Jesus learned to talk. The most important thing was the events surrounding his birth and his ministry and his teachings and his death on the cross. That was the most important. And 41 through 42... His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Deuteronomy 16, 16 and other scriptures prescribes uh, the attendance requirement of these three feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, the feast of weeks and the feast of tabernacles. And 43 through 45, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. This is where our understanding, we like, a day's journey? I mean, how, how could they not know that he wasn't there? This is where the ancient customs come in. Because in the ancient customs, people would travel in a caravan. 
You know, family was, was very big back then. It was very important. In our society, we're starting to see that splintered. But you see a lot in the ancient customs, hospitality and family were very big in that culture. And what would happen is they would travel in these large caravans. The women, the young ladies, and the little children would, would be in the front, and the men and, and, the, and the older boys would be in the back. So this was, this was Joseph's problem right here for losing them. But I could just see it now, Mary and Joseph looking at each other saying, I thought he was at you. No, he's not. I, mean, I have to laugh because as, as, you know, as married people here, we have to think about our relationships and our families. Uh, sometimes my wife will turn to me and goes, where's Josiah? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I thought he was with you. I kind of have that deer in the headlights look. It was, I guess it was my responsibility. But he's still around, so you know, we, found, we always find him. <laughs> yeah. I can't help but laugh. I mean, and then as guys, we try to say something dumb like a guy thing to try to make it better, to make our wives feel better. I mean, if that was me back then, I would have said, well, he is the son of God. He'll eventually figure out where we are. (laughs) Verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This was not an act of defiance or disobedience. You know, people, if somebody's trying to, Luke's trying to put this thing together and to show that he's sinless, and he thought that this would remotely have people think, ah, I nailed Jesus down. As a boy, he did something wrong. That's not what this is all about. Remember, Mary and Joseph were responding as concerned parents, not knowing the full scope and effect of the Messiah's ministry. What Jesus was doing as he was growing to adulthood, he was starting to separate the ties of his earthly family and, and obviously gravitate more towards God because he had a ministry of, ahead of him. Um, it's, Jesus is in his father's business. And there was, maybe they were a little surprised. He wasn't talking about his adopted father, Joseph. He was talking about his father in heaven. The whole Bible is about the father's business. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we in our father's business? That's the most important thing. That, that we need to be doing? Or are we still acting as children at some times? I want to read something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. It's one verse. He says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. That pertains to spirituality. Some Christians have been Christians a long time, and they're still speaking as children and doing childish things. Some people in the world have not come and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior because they believe that childish things of the world will make them happy. And they keep searching and they keep searching. And a lot of times people will say when you become a Christian, so what was the event in your life? What was the terrible thing that happened to you to bring you to Jesus? For me, it wasn't. It wasn't. I just was tired of leading my own self-directed life. It just wasn't working. But it wasn't traumatic for me. 
But at times, and God doesn't get offended. He loves us so much that we will try, you know, addictions. We'll try relationships. We'll try success. We'll try all these things to fill that void in our lives, in our hearts, and that can only be filled with God because that's the way he made us. And then we'll, at the end of the road, we'll go to God. But God doesn't get offended. He welcomes us with open arms. He allows us to go our own way and try all those things of the world and then come back to him. Even as Christians, you know, some Christians, uh, they go off. They're, they're involved in childish things. And the Lord lets them do that. He lets them backslide. The Bible speaks about backsliding. But he always welcomes you back with open arms. I love the story about the prodigal son. You know, when he was looking at the pigs and the pods and thinking about his servants in his father's house, that they were they're gonna, they're eating much better than me. What am I doing? He came to the end of himself and said, what, what am I doing? I'm chasing my tail here. And, and he went back to the father's house. And that's where we have to be. At Jesus, the 12 year old Jesus was in his father's business right away. And as Christians, it's time for us to start doing the same.